Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. My guest for today is a really interesting woman. She's a medical doctor, a general practitioner, uh, and she has a really interesting story. She was recommended to me, <clears throat> and uh, she did a really wonderful TED Talk, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. And uh, she's a medical doctor, I believe, uh, she said now for 20 years, and then uh, as we talked about through um, a certain series of events, she started questioning kind of best practices uh, of what she was doing and really started to branch out and look at healthcare in, in a new way, and, and I think a, a really integrative and holistic way. So it was really a pleasure for me uh, to sit down and talk to her. Her name is Dr. Alka Patel, and she has a really beautiful presence uh, and I think a lot of wisdom to share. And um, I, I think very much uh, one of these people who's really beginning to bridge a lot of these um, emerging but also ancient techniques of health and being able to to combine and synthesize those. And, and I think having... Uh, uh, a medical background really also gives a lot of uh, clout uh, to that as well. <clears throat> so I think voices like her are super important. Uh, I really enjoyed this interview. We talked about some really interesting topics about what is healthcare, uh, recommendations that, that she's seen to be really useful and effective and, and getting to the root of, uh, of, of illness and, and things that people can do, really practical choices to begin to empower themselves to take their health care into their own hands. So uh, it was a really great conversation. Uh, I hope you all enjoy it. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Uh, as always, Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up. There's different tiers you can sign up for. And those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all of the patrons, to all the people who are already doing that, as always, thank you very much. As always, I really appreciate your help. Uh, it's really all of you who allow this podcast to keep going. And if you are able to do that, it's deeply appreciated. There's also the ability to donate via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. If you're not able to do that, as always, uh, some of the seemingly small things are really big help. So if you're watching this on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section, uh, that's always a really big help with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. And if you're listening with the audio version, uh, the same on Apple Podcast or Spotify, following the show, subscribing to the show, and leaving a start rating and a short review. So I think that's it. Um, I'm actually traveling right now, and uh, so some of the orders of these may, uh, I'm still trying to get them exactly right, but I think when I release this one, uh, the following guest is a woman uh, named Linda Christine Adams who's done a, a lot of work with different plant medicines, and that was a really interesting conversation. And then also, uh, I believe Kathy Coyle uh, is coming up, and she's uh, a woman who I've worked with, uh, we've worked together, and uh, she does a lot of work with psilocybin mushrooms, and uh, she has a lot of knowledge. She's Irish, and she has a lot of knowledge of the, the more ancient cultures that come from that land, uh, the Druidic traditions, which I also um, 
recently came from Ireland and had a chance to kind of connect with that medicine in a way and um, it's amazing there's a lot of wisdom there so uh, I'm really looking forward to having her on as well so I think that's it and without further ado here's my conversation with Dr. Alka Patel Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. We were starting a little late as we've had some uh, technical difficulties due to my, my Wi-Fi. Um, but uh, I, as we were talking about before, um, I don't know if it's your assistant or a colleague, Amelia reached out and she recommended you to me. And I, I watched your TED Talk video and I was really impressed by it. Um, I, I find a lot of the points you addressed were really interesting. And I think, uh, especially someone who's a medical doctor, I think it takes a lot of courage to kind of open up about a lot of those points and, and talk about that. Because as one of the things you addressed, I, I think in that profession, there there is a lot of, uh, I'm not sure exactly how to say it, but for one, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility that, that it requires to be a doctor. And I think that's something that's often overlooked um, is just this very human aspect of what it means to be a doctor. And and I think we as a culture, we, we tend to put doctors on, on a pedestal and, and to look for them or to them for all of our answers and and also not realize that, that doctors like everyone are fallible, they're human. Um, and, and I think you, you really addressed a lot of those points really beautifully in that. So maybe just to start, um, you could speak a little bit about yourself, who you are, uh, where you come from, uh, how you became a doctor, and then also uh, what, what led you to, to make that video. And, and I imagine to kind of shift paths a little bit, uh, working not only as an allopathic doctor, but also beginning to incorporate uh, some of these different ideas that you began to speak about, which I think for a long time were, were a bit taboo in, in the kind of Western medical tradition. But it seems like more and more a lot of these topics that you're addressing are becoming um, much more discussed and actually taken very seriously as well. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, thank you, Jason, for uh, introducing the TEDx talk and recognizing some of the challenges around speaking differently. We talk about health, don't we? And it seems to have this sort of uh, one-way sign attached to it. This is the way to health and this is the way to, to get there and this is what you do. And uh, it comes down to how we're sort of taught medicine in the in the first place, how healthcare is set up. So how I how did I get into into health? I think it's just something that has been very innate in me for as long as I can remember. If I wasn't a doctor, I would have been a dancer. So I think I was it was always I was going to be a doctor. And if I wasn't going to be a doctor, I was going to be a dancer, which is <laughs> two very, very different uh, ways of, of living and being. Um, so it's certainly been a part of me for a, uh, for a very, very long, long time. And I do remember those medical school interviews 
um, where there's always that question, which is, why do you want to be a doctor? And it feels very cliched to say, I want to help people. But uh, I certainly remember the emotion attached to that for me, which, you know, came from a place of absolutely, I want to help people. I want to make a difference. I want people to live well and, and live long. And um, I thought I was doing that for a long time as a doctor. And, uh, and then, of course, took a moment to really reflect on what was that 18-year-old really thinking when she thought, I want to help people. And general practice. I'm based in the UK, in London, um, and uh, I'm a GP there. So general practice, is it's a, it's a tough place for doctors. There's huge challenges within the profession. There's huge challenges with, with patient demand and patient want and patient need. And it's a little bit like um, Sherlock Holmes medicine in a way. You know, you get this mystery of someone else's life that lands on your lap as a GP in a sitting in a consulting room and within 10 minutes you're solving this mystery and providing a solution and life doesn't work like that because when you've only got a such a short amount of time to figure it all out what's going to happen you're going to miss things of course you are no Sherlock Holmes ever solved a detective's mystery in 10 minutes. <laughs> it's, uh, they're complex and the mysteries of life are even more complex. And so I recognize that the way that healthcare had been set up was very quick, fast paced, figure it out quickly, provide a solution, wasn't really providing a fix at all. And what's happened in healthcare around the world, I think, is its, it's ownership has been taken away. Its ownership has been taken away from the people it belongs to, which is you. you. You own your own health. And this sense of creating a dependency on the doctor as the person with the solution, I think is very much at the root of why we're not living with health, we're living with illness. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned a couple of really interesting points. Uh, I think one of the things, um, I guess just in culture in general, but it seems to be the case with medicine as well, is we're very much moving towards this realm of specialization, uh, of, of reducing things and becoming very specialized at things. And th there, there's a really amazing quality that happens there, which is you're able to really advance technologically with that specialization. but. One of the things I think that sometimes gets lost is that ability to look at something holistically, because when you only see one piece, you don't necessarily see uh, everything as a whole. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding also in, in medicine, kind of the general practitioner is kind of following that same route. It's becoming less and less common. Uh, I've heard from some GPs that they, they feel maybe less respected because <clears throat> some of these more specialized areas are considered uh, maybe more desirable to go into that type of medicine. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, like, for example, I, I remember I, I practiced Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I was in, in New York City and the studio was in Times Square. And it, I mean... I guess you could argue a little bit, but if not, if it's not the most, it's certainly one of the most advanced places in the world, in the heart of Manhattan, in New York City, in the United States. 
And I broke my nose and it was a Friday night and I went to the ER, the emergency room, and I, I talked to like two or three nurses and then two or three doctors. And I was just explaining to them very calmly that I, I'd broken my nose and, you know, they, they were like looking at it and there was this whole like, well, I guess it is broken, but... And finally, it, it arrived at this point where they said, well, the ear, nose, and throat specialist is no longer in the hospital now, so you'll have to wait until Monday, and this was a Friday night, and we can make you an appointment. And I was just thinking how crazy that is, that uh, I remember my, my great-grandfather was an osteopath, and if someone broke their nose, they'd go see him, and, and one minute later, it was reset, and he sent them out the door, and he charged like $1 or something, and that was it. Um, but so do you think in that regard, because I, I think that's something I was alluding to a bit in the beginning is, is this mm -hmm. great responsibility that the doctors have. And, and mm -hmm. as I think you really alluded to this idea of, of solving this puzzle. And it's one of the things I've also experienced that the more I practice medicine is, is also really having this tremendous respect for doctors that when a patient does come to you, it's an amazing, uh, <laughs> It's a very difficult thing to really understand and get to the root of someone's uh, sickness or their illness. Um, so I guess the question is, do you think a lot of medicine in that becoming really specialized, it's losing that more holistic view or, or that ability to step back and, and look at things from a, a, a wider angle to, to really see the, the human being as, as someone more than just, you know, this is their ailment and, and there's one specific uh, treatment for that ailment. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a great conversation to have and a great question because, I mean, just in terms of the battles of the titles, there's always been this battle of titles between GPs and consultants and the whole sort of specialist, generalist uh, debate as well. Should should GPs be specialist generalists so they get that sort of sense of kudos uh, around the specialists? Should they be called consultant general practitioners? So there's that sense. But all this labelling, I think it's 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 irrelevant in a way it's more about approach and the word that's coming to my mind is synergy that connection absolute connection between everything nothing is in isolation how you sleep affects how you feel how you feel affects how you eat how you eat affects how you move so everything is in absolute synergy in terms of us, the human. And so the moment we try and divide and conquer, and divide into small pieces, we lose that connectivity. So I certainly think it's the, the grounding of medicine, the grounding of healthcare, the grounding of you, the human, comes from recognizing the, the connectivity, the holistic piece, the, the general piece. But there is certainly a space for specialization of course there is, because humanity is complex, health is complex. So there's a space for it. But I think the beginning of zoning in on health and wellness has to come from taking the biggest, broadest view that you can, but also, in a sense, getting right into the core, which might sound quite contradictory. You're taking a big view, but you're getting right 
into the microscopic core of everything. And I think it's, it's, it needs both. It needs you to really understand connection at a deeper level, at a cellular level, at an energy level, uh, at a connection level, and to notice how one thing affects another and then to see the whole picture. So, and I think this is the most important thing. It's getting to the root of the problem. So even with your example of your, of your broken nose, there's a whole context around that. And did anybody ask you about the context of your broken nose or was everything all about, well, is it broken or isn't it? <laughs> so it really depends what questions you're asking. I know, you know, as a, as a GP for a long, long time, I thought I knew everything about my patients who came to see me. You'd get very familiar. There'd be many that would come many times. I knew where their children were going to school. I knew where they were going on holiday next year. I knew lots about them. But you know what, Jason, there was one thing I consistently failed to find out. And that one thing was what motivated them, what drove them, what was going to drive them to make change. Why did they get up in the morning? What was the purpose of their day? Because without that, nothing changes. If you don't know what drives and motivates someone, what I found was I was giving so much great advice, really good, solid advice. Go and do this and eat this and, and, and do that. Exercise 150 minutes a week because Public Health England say that we should. Uh, and no one was walking out of my consulting room doing that because I didn't even know if they had a pair of trainers. I didn't even know whether they enjoyed that feeling of exercise. So if you don't get to the root of it and you just focus on, ah, you have diabetes or, ah, you're overweight, you, you can't change human behavior. So I think health has to be very, very focused on behavioral change, mindset, motivation, drivers, commitment, emotion, for sure. Yeah. So was there was there a certain point in your career where you realized that you maybe weren't helping people in the best way that you could? Was there one moment or it was something gradual where you you decided to to change your approach or what was that 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 really made you start to to look at things differently because it's a lot of the things that you spoke about, especially in that TED talk, they're they're rather outside of the box of of I think what a lot of people would consider medicine, or especially Western medicine. Mm. So, was there kind of like an aha moment for you, or it was just something that was gradually building? You you saw in your patients that uh, maybe there was something that could be better done, or, or what was that for you? Mm. Yeah, I think for me, there were three aha moments. We say that uh, we talk about these uh, teachable moments in medicine. When something with gravitas happens to somebody, it's a real moment to make a change. So if somebody's had a heart attack, that's the moment to talk about smoking and then they'll stop smoking. Um, but sometimes lightning has to strike more than twice for you to really make a change. And for me, it was three strikes. So the first one, which I talked about on my TEDx talk, was uh, the passing of my father. And, of course, that was a very, very painful time for me. And when I look back at that, I think that was the first, that was the first lightning strike, that here I am having handed over 
the health of someone so special to me to somebody else to fix. And it didn't get fixed. It got shattered and destroyed and broken. And what part did I play in that? So that was one strike. The second strike came a few years later when I thought I was picking up the pieces, thriving in my own life, had the children, had the house, had the career, had all the job titles. And then suddenly, very suddenly, I burnt out and was in a hospital bed. My kidneys were breaking down. My liver didn't want to work. I had those sort of end of life experiences you read about in books and think they're all made up the whole seeing the light and etc. But I experienced that and the vision of my children brought me back and here I am. So that burnout and recognizing all the signals in my life that I'd ignored because I was busy being busy, that was another another strike for me, really recognizing what was important. Yeah, the wind in my hair, sun on my face, the chatter of my children, sleeping, eating, nourishing, all those things became very, very important. But in terms of then changing my practice, changing my professionalism, um, the third strike was a very bizarre one, actually. It was just one morning, an ordinary surgery on an ordinary day, and I finished that morning surgery, and I sat on my practice manager's desk, and I said... That was boring. That sounds like awful words for a doctor to say about these interactions with patients who's, who are struggling and distressed and who need change. But I realized in that moment is that I wasn't motivating my patients, so they weren't motivating me. And those three strikes, just like that, that really made me realize that I needed things to be different for the people I was serving and for what I was getting back from them as well. And so what I did actually is I, um, I had this sense that I needed, you talked about being holistic. I needed to see a, a whole picture because we only see the zone that we're in. And for many of us, it's a very tunneled, tunneled life. We're used to our normal environment, our normal landscapes, the people that we are, are, are with most of the time. We're, we're creatures of habit, creatures of comfort, and we stick to the same. So I decided that I wanted to step on a plane and head off and just have a little bit of space on my own for discovery. So I texted my husband and uh, he was away at the time. And I said, I'm just going to be going off volunteering on my own. And he said, replied back saying, you do what you need to do. So I went off to India where I spent a month uh, looking after people at the end of their life in palliative care uh, amongst great poverty. But what I saw there was what actually changed me. What I saw was kindness. I saw compassion. I saw support in communities. I saw people taking care of themselves. That whole idea of self-care come to life because that's what they had access to. And when I came back to the UK, that's when I totally 360'd the way that I looked at, at health completely. Um, it had been brewing for, for a while, um, but to actually get out of that GP chair, hide away all the job titles that I'd acquired over all this, this lifetime of career expansion, put that away and say, no, you know, my focus is on, is on getting to the root of it all.
what I now call common sense medicine, lifestyle medicine, zoning in on the fundamentals of being human, purpose, energy, identity, food, exercise, sleep, emotions, all of those. And so those are those three triggers which culminated in seeing the world in a different way, which led me to a change. So no, I no longer now sit in a GP surgery doing 10-minute consultations. I now spend more time with my clients, with my patients. We shift emotions, we shift mindset, we shift behavior. I zone in on, on data. I think that uniqueness of being human, we have to recognize as well. And so I zone in on the incredible world we're living in, which is the sort of whole technological transformation that we're experiencing. And I will capture data on you at a genetic level, at a DNA level, at a functional level, which tells us, tells you exactly how you yourself are designed, what you yourself can change. I think there's a lot of guesswork in health. There's a lot of guesswork in self-care and actually being driven by data is very, very exciting as well and quantifying ourselves as well as the sort of qualitative sense of self is uh, very, very motivating as well. So, yeah, thank you for asking that. You, you mentioned something in the TED Talk, which I, I wasn't familiar with, and, and maybe I'm getting this wrong, so you can mm -hmm. correct me if so, but you mentioned this idea that the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, says that, that health is not within our grasp. Can you speak more about that? Did, did I get that correct when, when you said that? Not quite. So the other way around. So the, mm -hmm. the World Health Organization definition of health is a state of complete physical, emotional uh, well-being. And that sense of being in this complete state all of the time is then what I refer to is with, well, with that definition of health, we're never going to be able to achieve health. Amen. Because we, we have to allow the ebbs and flows of life. We have to allow the signals to, to ring out in order to change. But then when you feel that I'm only healthy, if I'm in this complete and constant state of absolute well-being, well, are you never able to be sad or feel lonely or have, have joy? You know, you need all of it. Um, so that's the, that was my sort of contention with that, with the definition. Um, because it puts it in a space of unattainable and actually health is fully attainable. It's actually what you have from the, from the moment you're, you're born, you have health. And actually then we spend the rest of our lives jeopardizing it by our choices and our, and our decisions. So it is absolutely within our grasp. Um, and I talk about, don't tell my TED, TEDx talk, my sort of acronym around health, about holding, engaging, actioning, learning, targeting, holding onto it, harnessing health as well. Um, and I think that's the, that's the important difference is if you treat your health more like a skill, more like a skill that you can optimize, you're going to be able to hold it as your own. Enjoy it. You mentioned this other really interesting idea, which is um, that for a lot of us, there's this idea of a kind of this hierarchical structure that that a doctor is someone of authority and that they are someone who knows maybe better than us what's the best for us. And 
and, and certainly there there may be some truth to that. But you also mentioned this idea that one of the problems you see is, I think, as you put it, this handing over our power to this authority and, and not being responsible for our health. Kind of this idea of just always going to someone else. <laughs> They sound excited. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so yes, um, but but yeah, this this idea of handing over power to authority can can you speak a little more about that? Because it, it also seems like there must be some balance in that. I mean, part of the reason someone is going to a doctor is they do feel helpless and they're looking for someone to to help them or to give them advice, but. But then on the other hand, there's this kind of, as you spoke about, this dependency, this relying on someone, this cyclical nature, this revolving door that you spoke about, where instead of maybe learning how to empower themselves, they're they're continuing this cycle of reaching out, and it becomes this kind of dependency relationship. So I think the key word here is positioning. With your health, do you position yourself as the owner and the creator or do you position the doctor? Do you position your responsibility first or do you position someone else's responsibility first? And I think that's the important um, distinction to make. And you're right. It is, of course, there is this, this line between Absolutely. There are many times and that you absolutely should be speaking to your doctor when you have signs and symptoms that you can't ignore. You don't want to be waiting until things become worse than they are. But I've had many, many, many consultations where things like, how long have you had the sore throat? Oh, well, it just started this morning, a couple of hours ago. So this sense that the things that show up in our life, we don't give enough time to to hear the signals, to tune in to, okay, actually, what could I do about this right now? And some of that is fear-led. And health at the moment, I think that's another issue that comes up. It's a very fear-led state of being rather than actually a more freedom-led state. It's you're worrying about what you could have from a damaging perspective rather than what you could have from a liberating, energetic, vitalizing perspective. Um, so the responsibility for health, if you say I am responsible for my health, then you will do what it takes to preserve it, to optimize it, to make it as outstanding as possible. If you hand over that responsibility to somebody else, whether that's a doctor, a friend, a spouse, a, a relative, you know, whoever you turn to, then you do disempower your own sense of ability. You disempower yourself to be able to tune into your own signals. You disempower yourself from being able to take the next best step. So there is this sense of shared responsibility but also positioning. Position yourself first and be in a place, if health doesn't go the way you want it to, if you do get a diagnosis you don't want, you always have choice about how you then manage that, what your next step is. 
And so if I said to you, Jason, we've, you know, we've done all your tests and uh, in terms of a diagnosis, you have di- now have diabetes. And then I went on and on to tell you about all the drugs, et cetera, that you could take. I have a choice to take those drugs, but you also have another choice, which is to say, I don't want this. I don't want this label. I don't want this diagnosis. Uh-uh, that's not me. I'm going to do what it takes to get rid of this label. And then you will, if you own it, back to holding it as yours, making decision, having the choice. So I think that's the most important thing is if you take responsibility for your own health, then you're also in the position to make decisions, to seek out information, to ask for information, to have a balanced view presented to you. Information is now at all our fingertips in the same way, although doctors have always held information and knowledge, the the amount of books, etc. I read going through medical school to qualify and continue to. It's lifelong. It never ends. Information is now so readily accessible by all of us. So it's not the information that's difficult. It's the interpretation that needs someone else, perhaps with the responsibility to help you with. But the decision, you've got access to that information. You've got ability to make those decisions on your own. Not everybody wants chemotherapy for their cancers. Many have reversed their cancers through very significant lifestyle choices. But if you don't seek out that information, ask for that information, find that information, then you don't have choice. Chemotherapy might be the right thing for you, absolutely, but you need to have choice. I think everybody has a right to, to that. And the way healthcare is set up as well from a professional perspective is also from a place of fear. Is that if I don't treat this the way that the guidelines or the standards have been set to do, then if anything goes wrong, it's my responsibility and I'll be held professionally accountable. And that fear-driven approach to medicine as well, I think, holds back a lot of professionals, a lot of doctors, a lot of other healthcare professionals from really calling it out as it is. And that I'm giving you this drug because I learned about it at medical school, but actually of 50 people who take this, only one benefits, 44 get side effects and the rest are pretty neutral. So then do you want to take this drug? So if we don't present information to you, the patient, the consumer, the client in that way, how do you have a choice? You look at that advice and think, right, that's what I should do. I should take this drug. And the fear is the profession is I've got to offer this drug because that's what I know to offer. and That's what the guidance says I should do. But actually, let's think about it. Are you doing more harm? Are you doing enough good? Are you taking away ownership? Are you taking away accountability, responsibility? Hand it back. And the profession itself, it's it's struggling. It's it's hard. So many doctors are burnt out. The rates of mental health effects, depression, anxiety are high. Burnout is high. Suicide rates, sadly, are high. And this all comes because of those that pressure of back to responsibility is high. And if it was shared would have a different feeling mm. yeah there's there's a lot there um I, I guess this is it may be a difficult question to answer but but from your experience 
You, you mentioned this idea of fear, which I think is a really powerful driving emotion. And, and you said this idea that uh, <clears throat> maybe some doctors are actually afraid to to prescribe something that's outside of what they've been taught. How, how common do you think that is? Uh, because it, as you also mentioned, uh, I mean, also as a doctor, you can only you can only do what you know. And, and so most doctors are taught in a very specific system, uh, usually prescribing some sort of pharmaceutical to, to treat a condition. How, how much would you say that that's just what people or doctors know versus also this idea, which I think is really fascinating, that others may have an inkling that there may be a better option, but they're afraid because there's also this accountability or liability if they were to do something that's outside of that system. Um, because certainly one of the it's also one of these things that has a pro and a con, like working in that system, you are afforded certain protection uh, against certain liability, but th that's good on one hand, but the, the bad side about that is then it may discourage, as you said, people from potentially thinking outside the box because then they may be uh, not protected in that way. Mm. That's really interesting and absolutely spot on because you're taught what you're taught, you learn what you learn. But I think if we, we have to recognize that in the realm of everything that is to do with being human and being alive and feeling alive is there is much, much more than you can be taught in five years at medical school and the learning is, is lifelong and the technology advances and science makes huge leaps and bounds every every week, every month, every year. Um, and the healthcare industry is dominated by the pharmaceutical industry, for sure. Absolutely. That doesn't mean there isn't a place for medication. There is. There absolutely is. It's back to that word I used originally, which was about positioning, is where do we position medication? Where do we position um pharmaceuticals, uh, which is why my approach, my own organization is called Lifestyle First, because if we position our lifestyle at the forefront of health and vitality and living long and living well, and that became the first thing you thought about rather than the second thing or the third thing, you didn't think about the drugs first, you thought about your own lifestyle and the power that that has, then the fear would be, would be less the fear of getting something wrong or getting something right or getting reprimanded would be less. That, that There is a standardization. There are protocols and there is an absolute need um, for that. But I think there is so much that we don't know and there's so much we don't know we don't know as well. And I love it. I love it, love it when my patients and my clients bring me information that I learn from that I then want to open up my mind to, that I want to explore with, with my clients, because it's not a one-way street. It's not a go this way. It's it's a two-way street. Let's work on this, on this together. And, you know, however unusual that request or that bit of information might seem to me, I think as a healthcare professional, you need a bit of humility. And that sometimes is what's missing. You need humility to say, 
I know what I know, but you know what you know. And I respect what you know. And I want to understand what you know. I had, a, I had an unusual request from a patient recently who asked me about drinking urine as a treatment for what she was going through. Now, you know, on first hearing that, I was thinking, what is that? I had no idea. I didn't even know it was a thing. <laughs> but it's come from somewhere. So I could have been a very dismissive doctor and said, no, 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 that's definitely not worth looking at. There's no evidence or information that's useful. There's not enough research on that. We don't need to go there. But I chose not to do that. And I chose to find out more and learn more from the patient because clearly it's something she's researched because she's got ownership of her health. And when you take ownership, you find out as much as you can about the thing that's right or wrong for you. And so having respect for that, having that humility to say, it's not something I know about. Tell me more. Let's have an even level playing field in, in healthcare. Change that, change that hierarchy. I'm learning, you're learning. We're growing. There's so much information. Everything is advancing. Let's learn together. It's absolutely fine. I think there's a, there is a place sometimes for many people who, who don't want that as patients or as clients, they, they desire to be told what to do next. But even then, I would always bring that playing field to a level playing field. Back to choice, back to spending time, back to hearing what hasn't been said is so important. So, yeah. It's funny, right before you said that, uh, somehow that's <laughs> that was the treatment that came to mind uh well actually one of the the former i think presidents or prime ministers of india actually attributed his health i think he lived to be 100 to to drinking of urine and uh mm -hmm. just the other day actually i recommended that to someone for something topical um and she was very hesitant but eventually she did it um you mentioned this really interesting idea, and it, it reminded me uh, a number of years ago, there was this movie called Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you ever saw it. Um, it was an American film with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And uh, I think Matt Damon's character was this this highly intelligent guy, and but he came from a very poor background. He never had the ability to go to university. And there's this scene where he was in this bar and uh, basically, to make a long story short, he, he was telling this guy who was like, I don't know, Harvard educated, that, that essentially his education could be, uh, instead of paying hundreds of thousand dollars, it could be learned for $10 a year at his local library. And, and I think that really resonated with people at the time. But, I mean, that movie's probably 20 years old now, and it was really before either the advent or the internet or, or at least the proliferation of the internet. And, yeah. and if that was true, then it, it's only more so true now. And you use this really interesting thing where I think you were alluding to that, that we have access to so much information now that, that maybe some of these things that, that maybe only certain people did have information or access to like a doctor in a medical school, like where else would you find that information from? Now you can Google it and, and have 
a million articles in, in the palm of your hands. And you use this idea of, of someone who can interpret that data or interpret that information. Um, do you think there's becoming a shift in medicine as this information is disseminated so widely that that there's a different dynamic that's happening now, that, that a doctor is someone who maybe one of the more important roles now is someone who's interpreting that data rather than having the sole access to that data? Do you, do you think that that's somehow changing the, the dynamic of, of a doctor-patient relationship now that the patient also has access to so much data? Yeah, for sure. The richness of the conversations has certainly changed um, in my career, which is now spanning 20 years. So certainly in terms of the sort of 20 years, access to information has changed significantly. And so that dynamic of the conversation is is very, very different. But going back to your library analogy, having knowledge, having information is one thing. And I'm I'm over the moon that we all have access to the same information, but you can't, nothing changes if you don't utilize that knowledge. We can all read the hundred articles. We can all maybe interpret them in our own way to suit what, what we want to interpret them for, but it's the utility of the knowledge that is so important. And I guess the debate is that who, where does that lie? Where does that, motivation to change, that drive to change, that responsibility to change lie once you've assimilated the information. Um, and so, no, I'm, you know, delighted that we've got information and access to it. Um, but I think it sometimes makes the job of the doctor quite hard because the data sources are so broad. Anyone and everyone can load up information under the guise of health now. And so that credibility piece, I think, is so, so important, providing credible information. And I don't just mean research-based. I have to say we've, we, we know about that sort of research triangle we're doing, randomized controlled trials on patients is that gold standard where the patient doesn't know what's happening to them. Two, two groups are matched and you can interpret the results on a very scientific basis. I tend to like to turn that all completely upside down and look at the power of what I call N equals one. So that one person in front of me who's had an experience of health, what, is they, what have we learned from that? And not necessarily how does that apply to the whole population, but how does the knowledge you have apply to you? What makes a difference to you on an individual basis that are very much focus on very personalized, data-driven, experience-driven health? Because again, there's one thing about having knowledge and information, but actually it's the experience of living that is at the, at the cornerstone of your own experience of your health and your well-being and your own vitality. You mentioned something in that talk, which uh, I'm sure is, is quite controversial, but you said health has nothing to do with good luck or genes. It's a skill. And, and then you went on to talk about this idea as, as health is a skill, which I believe was also the title of that video, that, that health is not a noun, it's a verb. It's, mm -hmm. it's something that can be taken action upon. It can be learned, uh, much like you use the analogy of riding a bike. 
Um, I think that's uh, that's quite a maybe shocking statement to a lot of people because I think so many people have been brought up that health in a way is luck. It's luck of the draw or it's, it's our genes that it's just, it is what it is. And whatever I do, I can't get out of it because that's just what I was born into. And, and it is a very kind of depowering mindset to look at. And, and certainly there, there, I'm, I'm sure there's truth that the genes play a role that they can make us maybe more predisposed to certain things that, this idea that, that every human is unique and we all have our, our positives or our things that need work. But I think a lot of people have this idea that just health, there's certain things that it just, we can do nothing about. And <laughs> if it's God's will, it's God's will and that's it. Um, so can you talk a bit about that, that this idea that, that, that health isn't just necessarily from luck or genes, but that it is a skill. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, absolutely. So that sense that our destiny is determined is what then creates despondency in life. You lose the joie de vivre of living if you truly believe that I have no sense of, of control or an op opportunity to reshape my health or write my own health story or be the driver of my own car. So genes, of course, DNA it represents the uniqueness of you, but DNA sits there to be modified. So we switch on and off our, our genes. They're not all automatically on just because we've acquired them from our, from our parents. And this is where your lifestyle comes in. 80% of illness or lifestyle diseases are totally preventable and reversible and reducible simply by focusing on your lifestyle because it's your lifestyle that then triggers, activates your genes, turns them on and off. So yes, whilst you can't change the uh, length of your legs and the length of your femurs and those sorts of things, because you know that's that's you got that you got that. Actually, the eighty percent of you that you can modify can make a huge difference. So I focus a lot on age reversal um, as well, and and the whole sense of longevity and what I call living your one million hour life, which is absolutely within our reach. Now, how many people do you know that have lived a one million hour life? In case listeners are trying to work out how long that is, that's 116 years. But there's someone on this planet who has lived 116 years. So that has to tell you that human potential to live a one million hour life exists. And it's not about genetics. It's about how you live, how you're, you're alive. And I'm sure you've talked about this on your other shows in terms of things like the blue zones where people do live to be over a hundred is what is it there? It's not all genetics, can't possibly be. It's how you move, how you connect, how you sleep. All these things that we self-sabotage simply by zoning in and watching that next episode of Netflix or, or flipping on your phone and scrolling through Facebook for hours instead of sleeping. This is what takes away the years from your life. You want to add years to your life? Live with purpose. I talked about purpose a little bit at the beginning. 
by living with purpose, and there has been lots of research done on this, you extend your life by seven to eight years. So seven to eight years simply by waking up with a reason to wake up. Why do you do what you do? Why do you go to work? Why do your feet hit the ground every morning? If you set your intention and set your purpose, you're automatically lengthening your life. So, and that's got nothing to do with your genetics. So really we need to zone in on 80% of my life is totally within my control. Start with that. Wear that, t that statement on your t-shirt. I'm in control of my destiny. Yeah. Mm. There's often something that's really interesting and um, I think a, a lot of the people listening to this, we, we live in a culture where it definitely it maybe glorifies youth and, and people, so-called experts and, and people who have some sort of authority, as you also mentioned. Um, but also, as you alluded to, like there is this 115-year-old woman out there who's real, like she exists. And that didn't just happen randomly. There was there were certain things that she did that allowed her to get to that point. How important do you think it is to actually learn from people like that? Uh, to actually to, to, to see what they did, like what works? Because obviously whatever she did, something worked. <laughs> and it's not theoretical. It's not, uh, well, I say this, but there's not necessarily proof to that. There's, you know, I think often in that way, it's, it's like, really in any field. I mean, there, there's something to be said for, for the people who really accomplish something in that way, that, that whatever they're doing, there's something to take from, from that, whether it's the highest level of sports, like how did that person get to that point or someone who lives to be a really long age, there's something that that person is doing that's allowing that to happen. Um, do you think part of the problem is that we've, we've kind of forgotten that wisdom? We've, we've maybe gotten, as you mentioned, so, so maybe infatuated with this idea of information and, and knowledge that we've also maybe gotten away from something like wisdom. Like you were mentioning when you went to India, for example, that there was all these things that you saw that, from a bigger perspective, make a lot of sense. But there may not be, like, quantitative or qualitative data that says, oh yeah, this is that. But if you just look at it from a, a, create a little bit of space and look at it, it becomes very apparent that these things, they're real. Like there's, there's a reason why people are doing that. Yeah. 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 Gosh, it's really interesting that you're, you're bringing this up um, because that sense of wisdom, intuition, tapping into yourself that for me came to life uh, very recently actually I went off just the last month to sit in silence in the mountains in Andalusia in Spain and I sat for seven days without speaking and that sense of we've lost sense of being in touch with ourselves became really apparent in the silence because when you're in silence you hear those signals 
you feel those signals. Your body's constantly pouring them out for you just to tune into, but you tune, you can't tune into them because you're so tuned into the rest of the world because life is noisy and life is busy and there are so many distractions and there are so many to-dos. But when you allow yourself to enter a space of silence, those whispers, those signals, you can hear. And when you go back to those, those are the signals that, that keep you alive. The signals of sleep and the signals of satiety and hunger and pain and joy and relief and guilt and, and wisdom lies in that space of emptiness, in that space of stillness. Sorry, it's not an empty place. It's a very full place because that is exactly where wisdom and intuition and trust and courage lie. So there is something about allowing yourself to step out of your busy world in order to, to just notice and just be aware. And there's also something else about learning from success. And back to, it's not good. It's not about just luck. Centenarians in the world, the 116, the 115 year old, it's not, oh, well, she just got lucky. Absolutely not. Let's sit and listen and learn. And pull what applies to you, because it, not everything applies to everybody. Because there's also risk at the moment of what I see a lot of, which is what I call off-the-shelf care rather than strategic self-care. So we do what other people are doing just because they seem to be enjoying it or seemingly thriving from it or doing well from it. So we'll do the same. I'll have celery juice for breakfast and I won't eat A, B or C and I'll stand on my head three times a day and all the things that other people seem to be doing. But what's the strategy for you? Yes, we can learn from others, but what do you extrapolate applies to you? And I think that's the important, important piece is to tune in because the signals are there. But the signals are there definitely from an experiential angle of just the experience of, of being alive, but they're also there in terms of the science of being human. So data within us is, is now so readily extractable. You can put a ring on your finger and understand your heart rate variability whilst you slept and understand your stress levels. You can wear monitors that tell you about your exposure to light. You can get reminders to tell you to stand up more. There's so much data we can tap into. We can do genetic tests. And I do these on, on a, many, many, many of my clients and patients so that you understand how you're made. Now you can actually know how you're made. What happens... To when you eat a potato, when I eat a potato, are going to be totally different for both of us. What happens if you run a mile and I run a mile? We're going to have a very, very different experience, partly related to how you're made. So know that. I did um, I do chronotype testing on, on my patients to understand the sort of sense of night owl and morning lark and your natural sort of cycles and being able to tap into those circadian rhythms. And if you know that about yourself, if you know that you are, you might feel that you're best in the in the night, but when your genes tell you that you're best in the night and the nine to five isn't quite suiting you, you're going to think, I'm going to do something about this. I want to feel productive. I want to feel more energized. I don't want to fit into the nine to five. And I'm not genetically made to fit into that. So what am I going to change? So the data gives you information that then drives your determination. 
And so, uh, as I was saying, I was doing bi- I do biological age testing on all of my patients because you want to live in this life for as long as possible. And if you can reverse your aging through your lifestyle changes and see the data on that, that drive is going to be even higher. So, yeah, I think you're, you know, you're definitely absolutely right. Being able to tune into yourself gives you that wisdom. Michelle. Can you talk a little bit more? Um, Cause I think that's a fascinating topic is, is this idea of data and, and you mentioned a chronotype, are, are there other tests that you take that you find to be really useful, like blood tests, stool tests, uh, allergy tests? What, what are the, the various tests or the data that, that you have found to be useful? So I talk a lot about the, the big five when it comes to testing. So I've alluded to some of those. And these are the sort of big five that if we all knew this about ourselves, our our level of health would be just so optimized. You know, and, and health gives you an ability once you've got that sense of energy and vitality, it then gives you an ability to do everything else that you want to do in your life. And when you don't have that energetic level, when you don't have that vitality because this hurts or you can't move or you're not sure about this, you've got this discomfort, or then it halts you. So knowing as much as you can about yourself is so critical. So my big five are your biological age because age is a very emotive subject, isn't it? We all... we. We talk about age, but we don't want to talk about age. And then we laugh about age on birthdays and send each other funny jokes about how old you're getting. But we don't really want to talk about it because there's a sense of, oh, you know, life is short and it's all going to be over soon. And so we we don't talk about it. But if you measure your biological age, which is your inner age, which has nothing to do with how many candles there are on your cake, then that single number is the number that's going to define your trajectory and use that to change your health, to change your well-being, to change your lifestyle. So biological age um, is, is, is an important number to know about yourself. And then if you think about what do we do all day? Well, it comes down to metabolism. It's our utility of our nutrition for our energy. It's how we use our oxygen and our, and our food sources to give us energy. So let's measure that. Let's measure what your nutritional status is like, your metabolic status is like, your energy status is like, what your mitochondria, those tiniest of tiniest of organelles in every single one of your cells that are giving you that ATP, that adenosine triphosphate, the energy molecule that's keeping me talking to you right now and keeping me standing up right now, because without that, I would be a pile on the ground, is, well, let's measure that. What, what's it, what are your mitochondria doing? What do they need to be at their most, most energetic? Because if your mitochondria are energetic, they're producing energy for you. So those are important tests to have what I sort of call um, your metabolic and that sort of energy um, tests as well. Uh, so those are critical. What else are we driven by? We're driven by our hormones. There's this huge, we started off this conversation, didn't we, about this sort of interplay of everything and how everything is is connected um, together. So measure your hormones, know your hormones, and then you can utilize that data to know what's missing and know what you need more. I'm talking about that optimized state. That's where you want to be. And you can be there when we talked again at the beginning about the who definition of a complete state of, of constant uh, well-being. Well, how are you going to get there? 
with the fluctuations. You've got to know your uh, your numbers. So your hormones are um, are very very important in all of that um, as well. Um, the other thing is motivation. I've talked about it quite a bit um, today, or at least the words sort of come up um, itself uh, quite a lot. So I do a lot of motivation tests as such. It's not a blood test, but it's a, a sort of a, a questionnaire analysis, which is sort of validated because you've got to know your own drivers. You've got to know what's going to drive you. I can give you all this data on you, but on you know, your hormone levels and your energy levels, etc. But what are you going to do to change that? So you've got to know your own drivers. And the other thing um, that is in our atmosphere, it's in our food, it's in the products that we use, um, sadly, it's, it's toxins, metallic toxins. They're, they're there around us. Um, and so we need to measure those to know that if you're not feeling at your peak, then what's the hidden stuff that you don't even know could possibly be affecting your cycles, your rhythms? Um, and so I measure measure um, toxins as well. And so putting all this information, you suddenly turn this, this qualitative state of you into a quantitative state. And I think both are important. Both are absolutely important. Your emotional experience of life, that, that qualitative aspect of, of being alive. But match that with your quantitative data and then use your data to change your lifestyle. And your trajectory is very, very different. Yeah. Yeah, great. In, in the talk, you mentioned these, uh, these nine, as you call them, lifestyle changes. Um, is that something you could talk a bit about? Uh, do you, you still find that those, are, those, those nine changes are, are each really important? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So these nine elements of optimized health of living being able to live the longest life you probably can haven't come to me just by sort of being plucked out of the air this is what i've learned from 20 years of from my patients i've had the privilege of walking alongside thousands and thousands of patients and they're what have taught me what matters what is the key stuff in your lifestyle that if you could just hang on to this, optimize this, what a difference that would that would make. So I talked already about life's purpose. Um, so I have this lovely acronym that makes this easy to remember, which spells out the word lifestyle, which is uh, in my talk as well. And so thinking about your life's purpose is very, very critical to a long life. As I said, it does add eight to seven to eight years to your life if you really fill your life with that sense of intention. And then what connects very much to your life's purpose is your identity as well. We've talked a little bit about this in terms of your own self-awareness of who you are, what you value, what's important to you, how you show up in the world. So that's really important because your values, again, it's a, it's a conversation I have a lot with my clients every single day, in fact, because if you don't know what's important to you, then again, What's driving you forward? And when I ask people this, the very, very first time I ask, what, what matters to you? It's never an easy question to answer. Because in our busy lives, we don't really think about it. We might say, oh, my family's important. What about your family? What about you and your family? 
How do you show up? What's important for you? Because it's when our values get challenged that we start to experience emotional distresses. And when our lives are filled with our values, what I call flavor and savor, if you can flavor your day with your values and savor how good that felt in the evenings when you come home from work or at the end of a day, then that's a good life. You're going to feel good about that. Flavor and savoring your life with your values means you can show up as you. And a lot of emotional disorders, emotional distress, anxiety, depression, all of that comes down to not being able to express some of your values and what's important to you. So that's an important piece. Yeah, of that, that. That's, that's fascinating because mm. that, that's something I often talk about. I, yeah. I often use the word principle instead of value, but I, I think it's, it's really the same thing. And it does seem like there's a tremendous amount of suffering that happens because I, I think people have really lost principle. And, and as you said, it's, it's actually something that's really hard when you ask people to, for them uh, to really think about that, because I think a lot of people haven't. And, and I think it kind of corresponds to this idea that you spoke about, about giving power up to an authority is, is it's much easier when we don't have values or when we don't have principles, it's much easier to give that power up mm. because in a sense, we don't have something to stand on. There's, there's not that groundedness or that rootedness to, to lift ourselves up in that way. So that's really fascinating. Also, sorry to interrupt. It, it, it was just one thing I also found in your TED talk that was really interesting is I find that's uh, the life's purpose one is really an interesting one because in my work, I see that that's really one of the common things where people are really looking for is they feel like either they don't have or they've become disconnected to their life's purpose. But one thing you seem to allude to in the TED talk was this idea of maybe even just making a purpose for the day, like something short term, uh, because I think a lot of people get lost in like, I need to find my long term life's purpose. And, <laughs> and every second or every day that I don't find that it's depressing because I'm not fulfilling that. But this idea, I think you said when you wake up just to, to find the purpose of today and, and, and then there's a fulfillment and it's something that's that you can also experience the rewards of that and the accomplishment of that, of actually fulfilling that purpose that you made for, for the day. Yeah. Oh gosh, absolutely. Because think about it this way. If you live with purpose on one day, then that day becomes the next day and the next day, which becomes a week, which becomes a month, which becomes a year, which becomes your life. So just go one day at a time this isn't about that huge big what is the purpose of life and trying to answer those ethereal questions it's what is the purpose of my day today and then ask yourself that every single day and then you've got a purpose for life because you've lived it with with intention and think about those moments as well i mean certainly before i came onto this conversation with you i said to myself and it's just a simple question to ask yourself What's my intention for today's conversation? How do I intend to show up? And my words before I joined were very simply calm and curious. Because I didn't know what we'd be talking about. And I'm really curious to see where this conversation goes. And I'm really calm because I don't feel I have to come with anything. It's just here in the conversation. So do that. That next board meeting you've got to go to, 
before you step into the room? How do I intend to show up? Am I the going to be the? Do I want to be the radiator in the room that warms it up, or do I want to be the drain in the room that drains the energy from the room? Have fun with it. <laughs> Have fun with purpose. I think you're right. It becomes a really serious conversation, a really serious thought process. Is what is my purpose? But let's lighten up. Have fun with it. And I think the important question, secondary sort of paragraph to that is. The purpose of my day is, yes, finish that part, but remember the bit that says, so that. Why? Why? The purpose of my day today is to be calm and curious in this conversation with Jason so that I can learn about myself and share what I know with others that haven't even met me yet. And that meant I was itching to come on to this conversation with you right so do this so that because sometimes we go through the motions of life a lot of people do that you have this this groundhog day you've seen that film haven't you groundhog day where you just go round and round do the same thing every single day you go through the motions of life without the emotions of life so put the emotion in which is the so that it's the reason yeah that's fascinating um in the work I do, that's one of the, we often start by trying to find an intention mm -hmm. and, uh, the intention is often without emotion. It, it's, for, for example, someone may say, I, I want to find my life's purpose or I want to find my partner. Um, but it's very interesting because I find there there's an emotion that's that's under that that's that's beneath that which is actually what they're looking for and i think a lot of people get lost in the trap of this idea of if i just get this thing which is often like a noun in a way <laughs> you know if i get this title or if i if i get the new car that's what i want but nobody really wants the new car what they want is there's an emotion behind that. And, and those two words are so powerful. So that, and it's such a powerful tool. Like I want the new car so that, and then, and then it, it, it really opens up this whole world. Well, what is it that I really want? <laughs> you know, and usually it boils down to really simple things like, because I, I want to be happy so that I can feel peace so that I can feel joy so that I can feel a connection so that I can feel love yeah. and if people can I think tap into that then the external things begin to lose their their importance or their gravity or their seriousness it, mm -hmm. it becomes secondary in a way yeah and then you can begin to find that in all things and yeah, so that's that, that's that's really fascinating um and it doesn't have to take long, does it, Jason? These these questions you don't have to ponder over for for a long time. I recognise that we live in a busy world, and and some of we sometimes we thrive in that busyness. So, just I've got a book coming out uh, hopefully later this year um, where I talk about using just one minute, just take one minute of your day to ask yourself that question, and then your the rest of your day you set you've already set the tone for it. So it's not about needing to fire. I know I went off for seven days of silence, but it's not about going off into the mountains and sitting under a tree. It's about what happens in your absolute day to day. And we all have one minute. We've all got 60 seconds at our disposal to do that. Exactly that. 
Yeah, love that. Yeah. Great. So uh, life's purpose, identity. Yes. And then food. <laughs> oh, yes. Food, food, food. We love talking about food, don't we? So, um, yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of... There's a lot of food wars that go on. I'm sure, you know, when you're, you're talking to people as well, there's a lot of diet debates and, and on we go. But my, my approach um, is very much about letting your food flow with your needs and uh, tapping into, again, that uniqueness of you and how do you utilize food and what does it mean for you and what's your connection with food rather than the sort of necessarily very strict diet culture um, that we're living in. But again, know why. What is it that you need food to give you? Or not to give you if you're trying to lose weight what's again back to purpose why do you want to lose weight back to identity how does it connect to your identity then what emotion do you have attached to losing weight what food choices are going to support that and all of that is about knowing yourself again not the off-the-shelf stuff but knowing the uniqueness of you and, and testing is really useful um, for that as well because it gives you that curiosity piece about yourself as well and an opportunity to have fun with food you know food comes with emotion doesn't it we will remember family gatherings around food or grandma's best sunday lunch or the time we had ice creams on the beach so there is always emotion attached with with food as well so let that play out in a way that's that's helpful for you as well so yes l-i-f-e is for exercise and very much about how we're designed to to move because of course we are i'm standing up right now um chatting to you and i I certainly don't think we do enough of that uh, in its simplest form. Standing up is a form of exercise. We're so used to sitting down and then, of course, posture changes and joints change. And when you're in pain with your body, it holds you back. So move. Allow it to do what it what it's designed to do. Get comfortable being a bit uncomfortable. And again, you know, vary it up um, as well. And sometimes we... We tend to, with exercise, we tend to go very all or nothing. There's those who go to the gym and are constantly at the gym and those who do yoga for hours every day. But actually, the, you know, our body is designed to move in so many different ways. So adding variety to your movement is, is super important as well. And L-I-F-E-S is all about sleep. Sleep, sleep, sleep. I think uh, we're in this epidemic as well of, of sleep deprivation and it's self-inflicted and we're living in this 24-7 society and this sense that I'll sleep when I die because I've got to stay awake to do everything that I want to do. But actually, we don't grow like that. We regenerate when we sleep. Our growth hormone is triggered when we sleep. Our brain has to have a washout when we sleep. Our gut heals when we sleep. So you self-sabotage sleep. Um, you lose years in your life. You prioritize your sleep. You gain years in in your life. And, and again, sometimes it's self-sabotage. Often it is. And sometimes it comes back to the emotional overlay around sleep as well. So there's a lot there that, you know, we can really focus on to, to value it more, to make sleep valuable, recognize what it, what it gives you as well. And uh, to prioritize that in your life as well have that magic number of eight impregnated in your mind seven to eight hours is what i you know what I, I owe this to my body it's been working hard all day my brain's been on fire all day long and i just want you to just get your own rest and have your own washout and 
I want my body to heal at night because you do such an amazing job for me every single day. So it's again that sense of gratitude towards uh, towards your own mind and body and allowing it to just sleep and rest, which then connects with my the next letter, which is T, like in lifestyle, it's T for time out. And really thinking here, again, in your busy day, busy year, is where are you taking time out to just be present, to know yourself, to feel calm, peace you mentioned earlier as well. And there's so much here which is at our fingertips, how you breathe, for example. I focus a lot on breathing techniques and your breath's always with you. And in 60 seconds, in an instant, you can change your state of mind by changing your state of breathing this beautiful connection there's a part of your brain called the locus cerulis which is almost like the sort of pacemaker in your brain which connects to your breathing rate and from that locus cerulis you release chemicals that activate uh, connect directly to your stress center and so there's that direct connection and so the way you breathe if you slow down your breathing, you slow down the activation of your stress centers. And that's the direct, very, very direct, more scientific correlation between why breathing and slowing down your breathing makes a difference to your stress and to your blood pressure. And we've attached science to this now, haven't we? But of course, you know, for four or 5,000 years, the yogis in the East have known about these, these practices far longer than the scientists over here in the West. So it's, you know, lovely to be able to to blend the art and the science together now as well. So, um, yeah, so that's about taking, taking time out, um, and recognizing the human need to do that. We're not designed to go, go, go. If we go back to our ancestors, they spent, they spent 30% of their day in activity, hunting and everything else they did. They spent 70% of the day time out, resting, regenerating, recouping. What do we do? What have we done? flipped it <laughs> totally the opposite totally the opposite so we have to recognize that we've not designed been designed like that and the way we evolve it it doesn't catch up it hasn't caught up with 21st century living so we're still wired the way our ancestors were which is why again that's where a lot of distress comes from is that we don't actually tune in to our very natural rhythms uh, we're always countering them uh, and that's what causes ill health causes disease, causes inflammation to get triggered and set everything off. So timeouts are really important, um, important piece. The why in the lifestyle acronym is for your connections, which is very much about our interconnectedness, relationships, how we love, how we connect, what we learn from each other, that interconnectedness, but also that intraconnectedness, that sense of solitude, enjoying being with yourself, learning from yourself, not loneliness, which is where you're craving other people, but actually solitude and having that connection with yourself. Um, and there's, of course, another connection we need to think about nowadays, which is your digital connection as well. How do you connect with the with the digital world and this tool in our fingertips without it becoming the power that takes over, that becomes the tool that you can utilize for your benefit? Uh, so that's what I talk about in when talking about learning uh, about your connections. And then L is for learning habits. And habits, of course, is how we we function. There have to be parts of our life which are automated. 
because this brain up here sending us 50,000 thoughts a day. We can't possibly process all of those. So if we automate the parts of our life in a way that meet our needs and go back to that connection with your identity, if you want to show up as an energetic person and have the identity of being energetic, then what habit is going to serve that? learn the habit that connects with your identity so there's again in that in this whole lifestyle first methodology that i've got the lifestyle first method it's all connected everything's connected and the final part is your emotions of course which uh lie at the as the absolute driving force for for all of us is our our emotions they all need to be given space i think we spend a lot of our lives trying to hide away from the the more difficult emotions. We don't want to feel sad. We don't want to feel anxiety. We don't want to feel distressed, but they're all signals. They're just signals from our body to, to take action. We need anxiety. Otherwise you'd never cross the road safely if you didn't have that as a signal, right? So it's again, what is this emotion telling me? Not I've got to get rid of you, but I've got to use this to make a choice for what happens next. Yeah. 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 Well, I know we're coming up on our time limit. There, there's a couple last questions. Um, one of the things I found really fascinating at the end of your talk was this idea of forgiveness. And I, I think that's something that's often really overlooked. And, and yet it's much like you mentioned this idea of breath work of the, 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 the ancient yogis. There's there's a lot of these ideas in a lot of spiritual traditions and, and this idea of forgiveness is actually really common. And yet it's also something I, I think we maybe tend to overlook or we look at it as something really simplistic. And yet I found it fascinating that that's in a way, like one of the ways you ended the, the, the talk with, and I, I don't know if you did that consciously or unconsciously, but, but there's something really powerful in that, this idea of forgiveness, of, of, of letting something go, of, of, of surrender also in a way. And there, there's something really powerful about that. Um, is that something in your practice that you've, you've seen a, a benefit or, or, or there's, there's, there's a value in that that you can talk about? Oh, for sure. So it's, it's a common experience for so many people to have felt this sense of being hard done by, that something in life happened to them at the hands of somebody else and somebody else's decision. And I think you're absolutely right. The processing of that is not something we talk about. And I tend to come at it from a place of gratitude in the sense that wherever you're at right now, you've got to hear because of that difficult experience, whether that was a person or, or a situation. And if that hadn't happened, being here right now, exactly who you are in this space, wouldn't have happened either. So the letting go comes with the gratitude that says it was difficult, you played a part in my life and grateful for that part you played because I'm now here experiencing life this way because of that. But I now no longer need you. You've served your purpose. And thank you very much. I let you go. Yeah. And it's a powerful thing to do. 
how do you see the how do you see healthcare moving forward? Um, obviously, even in your own life, your own trajectory, there's there's been a transformation. Do you do you see that moving out? Uh, I guess globally, or do you see maybe an archetypal pattern that that healthcare moving forward that you think it's going to start to expand in other directions, or do you have any sense of what that's going to begin to look like? I think it's already starting slowly, but I see healthcare moving in a split direction. One part that we call sick care and one part that we call healthcare. And the sick care is more what we're used to now with doctors is that when you get sick, then that's the place to go because you need those incredible therapies that we have, whether it's the cancer or the diabetes or the, or the heart attack. So, and that's recognizing that, that doctors are great at that. You get sick. We can, we can, you know, really, really help that, but there's a whole big arm about holding your health and that's the healthcare bit. That's the, the lifestyle piece, the lifestyle medicine uh, angle. That's the self-care medicine. Um, that's the forgotten medicines, what I call the forgotten medicines of, of silence and of, of gratitude and of happiness. Those are the lifestyle medicines that I think uh, uh, play the integral part in health. And so I think I see it edging that way. I see people's demands on health changing in terms of the whole prevention and staying well and staying optimized and then life happens and things may not stay at that level as long as you want and then there's a whole arm that will help you with your sickness to get you back to to your health yeah you mentioned one thing at the end which i i find really fascinating um this idea that your health creates global health and i think that's something that a lot of us have become really disconnected to it's kind of the zero sum game of how we look at the world that somehow um if i do really well then it's at the expense of someone else um but it's i think interesting when we begin to look at the world that that my health actually is an integral part of global health that as I heal, the world heals because I'm, I'm part of the world. The, yeah. the world isn't comprised of random numbers or statistics. It's comprised of, of people and life. And so someone who is healthy is, is, is making the world a healthier place. Someone who's improving themselves, improving their mind, improving their body, they're, they're, they're putting that out into the world and, and that has an effect on the world as well. So, um, can you maybe talk a, a little bit about that, that idea that your your health creates global health? Yeah, I think you've just talked about it beautifully there, Jason. And it is, <laughs> it's absolutely that, isn't it? It's that when you're, when you're not at your peak, when you're not at your most healthy, who is that impacting? So you think about health impacting you, but the impact is on the people around you. And the impact on their, their impact is on the people around them. And before you know it, there's that sense that one person has actually affected 125 others and on goes that ripple because of the, the connectivity. So if your ill health leads you to a place of sadness, then that sadness infiltrates into 
your children and your work colleagues, and then that infiltrates into their families. And so on that ripple goes. So that sense that if I'm at my most healthy, I'm contributing, I'm in a position of contributing to the world, the sense of being able to donate yourself to the world is much higher because you're then at your most energetic, you're at your most productive, that sense of contribution and value that you're giving out is is huge. So that's the get global connectivity and also recognizing that what you do directly affects somebody else. If you're tired and your car swerves whilst you're driving, that has a direct impact. Your health in terms of not having got a good night's sleep makes a difference to somebody else's life. And that's that gravity, there's real gravitas to that actually making a difference. So we've talked about the sort of more energetic difference and that contributory difference, but there, the difference is also, there's a big physical difference as well. So we have to be very, very mindful that what we each do has a very direct impact on others. And what do you want that impact to be? I, I actually had this conversation just this morning with, um, with a client and really, again, slowing down your thinking, really to think about what effect do I have? That one belief that I have about myself what impact does that have? I'm not a good enough mum. I can't do this. I'll never get through this. What does that hold you back from? What effect does that have on someone else's emotions around you? What would you rather you believed about yourself? There's, again, something there about creating your own self-beliefs in a way that support you. So, yeah, there is huge connectivities and you only have to walk into a forest, don't you, and, and see the connectivity in the trees and all the connectivity you don't even see. That, that root structure is in, incredible, how, how nature supports itself and we're no different. Yeah. Well, Alka, this was amazing. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing and and sharing your story and your life and what you've learned over this time. And you have a beautiful presence and, and a lot of wisdom. And um, I think it's it, it's rare for people to have all of those qualities and to really be able to, to share and to connect with people. So thank you very much for coming on. And, uh, and, and like I said, and sharing and giving and for all you do. And if, if people are interested in learning more about you or maybe working with you, is, is that a possibility or is there some way that they can learn more about you or reach out to you? Oh, for sure, Jason. I would love that. Firstly, thank you for all your very, very kind comments. You've been a wonderful host. I've been able to be calm and curious in our conversation. So thank you for enabling that. And I'm very, very happy to support any listeners who want to get in touch. So my website is a, is a quick and easy place to reach out to me. It's dralkapatel.com. And if you go on there, actually, there's a, um, there's a free test that I call the LQ test, which will help you zone in on your lifestyle and your lifestyle our choices and think about where is it that I want to make those changes and there's lots of resources and support available with that attached to that test if you want to head over to dralkapatel.com to do that and I'm also on all the all the social media channels dralkapatel UK so do feel free to, to reach out that'd be great I'm very very happy I've got courses and retreats and programs and coaching and tests and all sorts of things that we can chat about so that would be lovely Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this. Thank you, Jason. Thank you.
All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, it was really a pleasure for me to sit down and speak with uh, Dr. Patel. As I said, I, I think she has a really lovely presence and, and really a lot of wisdom in drawing on her own life, her, her own discoveries, the, the allopathic Western medicine tradition, and really beginning to integrate a, a lot of other things that she's found for herself, which I, I think are super important. And, and really give uh, depth to the, the human experience, the, the field of medicine, the field of health. So I, I think she's doing wonderful work. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that episode. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really wonderful option. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, uh, there's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&A. Uh, to all of the people who have done that, thank you very much. Your support is uh, deeply appreciated. And if you're able to do that, uh, thank you in advance. It's a, it's a really big help. It's really what allows me to continue to do these podcasts. Uh, if you're not able to do that, as always, some of the small things, uh, if you're listening to this on YouTube, um, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help. Leaving questions or comments in the comment section, uh, that really helps with the algorithms. And if you're listening to this on the audio version, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, following or subscribing to the show, and with Apple Podcasts leaving a starred rating and a short review, <clears throat> that's a really big help. So. I think that's it. Uh, my next two guests, uh, again, should be um, Kathy Coyle, who I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, who uh, works with psilocybin mushrooms and is really well-versed <clears throat> in some of these druidic traditions from Ireland, and then Linda Christine Adams, who's done a lot of uh, plant work in different traditions and uh, has a lot of knowledge and wisdom to share. So I think that's it. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you all on the next one. Thank mm -hmm. you.